everybody, this is Chris with the Running Rogue Podcast. As always, I have Steve with me. Hello, Steve. Hey, Chris. And we are here today to talk about marathon race planning. That's our main topic. And so we're going to get into that a little bit as we go, helping you figure out how to think about logistics, nutrition, hydration, pace strategy, and all the things that you need to worry about to get ready for your race. We have a bunch of races coming up here in Texas and also in the spring with Austin and then New Orleans and Boston and others coming. So we want to make sure people have the opportunity to think about how do you plan this so that you eliminate as many variables as you can. And we should probably mention that this is mostly related to marathoning. Yes. Because prepping for a half or a 10K or a 5K is considerably less uh, less of a task. Right. Well, and there's also, you want to give yourself something to do in preparation for a marathon <laughs> because you get a little bit insane in the last few weeks. So this gives you some things to think about. So we'll go through that. Before we got, dive into it, I wanted to mention that we are also now on iTunes as of our third episode. So you can find us on iTunes. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, either through the iTunes software or through the podcast app on your phone. And then you will automatically get our episodes once they're uploaded. So check that out. We are now easier to access. And of course, as always, you can also find us on our website at roguerunning.com under resources. So today we're going to intro with some news. First, just local Texas news. We wanted to give a quick shout out to Paul Terranova, our, was on our, one our, of our guest guests on the third episode mm-hmm. who we interviewed. He won the 50K at Bandera this past weekend. And it was also an interesting weekend because that 100K, which is the the 100K, USATF 100K trail, trail Championships, was won. The overall race was won by a female, Stephanie Howe Violet, who actually won Western States. So shout out to Girl Power. Absolutely. Which is awesome. She she beat all the guys. And I think there was women that finished first and fourth with Camille Heron getting fourth. So that's solid results for the ladies. And then, of course, we had Eric Stanley, who is a former employee of ours, get first in the 25K. So fun weekend, if cold, out at Bandera. Started that way, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive into our main topic, we also want to cover up uh, cover a couple of recent retirees, or at least announced retirees, from the sport of track and field. Two men that are going to leave holes in their, in their events, for sure, and definitely holes in the sport, although... I think both of them will be involved in the sport as they go. We learned this past week that Ash Neaton will be retiring as of now from the decathlon, and Nick Simmons will be retiring at the end of the season after the Worlds in in August from the 800. So those are two big names, and for those that are track fans, you know them. For those that aren't track fans, I did want to read off a couple of accolades. Nick Simmons is probably best known for being the man that shows up on the line at U.S. Champs. He's a six-time U.S. champion in the 800. Did it five times in a row. As a result, he also made six teams. So he made two Olympic teams and four world championship teams, although he didn't go in 2015 because he chose to protest, which we'll talk about (laughs) in a second. He's also the fourth fastest U.S. 800 meter of all time and, and competed and finished fifth in the Olympics in probably the arguably the greatest 800 meter race ever run when Rudisha ran the 800 world record in 2012 in London. So 
That's Nick Simmons. He's known for those accolades, but he may be best known for some of his his contributions off the track as somebody who's been an advocate for athletes' rights and also for pushing the envelope with USATF on governance and the sport and so forth. And then, of course, you had Ashton Eaton, who maybe from personality standpoint might be the polar opposite. It's a little <laughs> bit more soft-spoken, soft always very professional, and and is somebody loved by his competitors, but two-time gold medalist in the Olympics, also holds the world record for the decathlon as well as the indoor heptathlon and is arguably the greatest athlete of all time. Yeah, as we call GOAT. (laughs) Yes, greatest of all time. So with that introduction, Steve, I want to get your perspective on those two athletes and their contributions to the sport. We'll start with Ashton to start because he, you know, as distance runners, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the decathlon. Um, but as a, as a track fan and as a former collegiate track coach, um, I don't think that people really recognize exactly how difficult the decathlon is. You're doing five different events on one day in rapid succession, but this still takes up, I don't know, four, five, six hours of time. And then they come back the next day and do another five events, each one of those events having very little to do with any other so if you consider what it takes to run a 100-meter dash and then what it takes to run a 400-meter dash and then what it takes to run a 1,500-meter race, in just the running events alone, you're talking about completely different training styles, completely different effects on what they're doing. Um, and so then you add in the pole vault and the javelin and the shot high put. jump and the shot put. and. They have got to be the best in the world, nearly the best in the world at what they do for one event and then stretch it over 10 events. So first of all, hats off to the decathletes of the world. Trey Hardy is a good friend of mine. I've known him. He was, a, he was also a world champion. Not, never got the gold medal, but he, got a world champ, he won a world championships. And you know, looking at him and looking at his career, just knowing how hard he had to work and knowing the kind of level of effort that Ashton and his coach, Coach Mara, have put together with that, it's pretty amazing. It was a telling quote Coach Mara said that said it was, number one, he was super happy that they chose to retire on top, which I think is really critical and crucial and pretty cool. But secondarily, he said he doesn't think anybody ever understood how tired he was to say as the coach to create <laughs> the patterning and the, the, the planning and everything that it takes to be a decathlete to say nothing of what it was like for, for Ashton and his wife, Brian Thiessen. So it's right. a pretty amazing what they've accomplished. And, um, I think it's really good for us as track as distance runners to also respect the other events that are happening out there and to recognize when someone is the greatest of all time to give accolades there. I mean, he also, and Trey actually tweeted when the announcement came out about Ashton's professionalism, as well as the care he took with his competitors he was always somebody, and the decathlon is that way. A lot of people don't know it unless they've seen one, but the decathlon and the haptathlon for women are very collegial fields. You don't look across and think you're competing. You're competing essentially against yourself, and then the outcomes are what they are. But at the end of both of those events, everybody circles up and does a lap together because they recognize as a fraternity or sorority of sorts that it's a collective effort and not just that of an individual. So there's some of that built into the sport already, but from what you hear from his competitors, he was somebody that went out of his way to make make sure he was reaching out to others within the sport. And as someone on top who is so dominant, maybe that's not always easy to do. 
Oh, it's certainly not easy to do. Um, you know, and that there's two little there's two approaches to that. One is it's so incredibly encouraging to see an athlete who gets on the starting line and recognizes that their competitors are there to make them better. Um, I think every runner should recognize that and realize that while we do want to sort of lean at the tape to beat somebody or to run faster than another person did, we still need that competition and those people to lift us to the next level. And I think Ashton has a keen understanding of that aspect that, and then to keep it, to keep it on the up and up and keep it in a positive place. Um, it, it must come dispositionally relatively easy for him because it's not a natural, normal human thing. So it, I'm, it's pretty impressive. He's an incredibly impressive human being and the, and the sport will sorely miss him. It will be very interesting to see what the next step he takes will be. Um, you know, as far as, Nick Simmons, we pretty much know he's going to definitely not recede into the limelight and ride off on his horse to the sunset. Right. He is going to definitely stir the pot um, and and continue to advocate for athletes' rights, to advocate for a little bit of jackassery generally in the sport itself. Um, but one thing I want to bring people's attention to about Nick Simmons, in my opinion, we talk have talked recently over the last five to ten years about the resurgence of American middle distance running on the world stage. And I will tell you, in my opinion, one of the most important people to making that happen is Nick Simmons. He has to get credit for that. We frequently give credit to Jenny Simpson and, and Shannon Robury um, on the women's side. We give credit to Leo Manzano on the men's side. But guess what? No one was as consistently dominant. No one was consistently in the mix at world championship and Olympic finals. And no one was able to do it with the sort of exciting run from behind create just panache. An, um, it just did it with style baby total style and i think that that part is what resonated with young people who then decide they want to train harder and they want to be like nick and then they and they do the work necessary make the sacrifices necessary and race results get better and better so I mean, I do think I'm not saying he is the only one responsible for the resurgence of American middle distance running, but I think he is largely responsible for that and should get credit where credit's due. Certainly in the 800. I want to read a quote here from an article that I read this week. Tim Layden is an SI writer who covers a lot of sports for SI, including horse racing of all things, but he also covers a lot of Olympic sports. I follow him because he does a good job of telling the stories of track and field. So for those that are looking for a mainstream media source that does cover track and field, look, look at Tim Layden from SI. But he had, a, he had this quote in an article about Nick Simmons this past week. He said, The first laps of his 800 always looked like torture, his upper body swiveling from side to side and his knees driving as he tried to generate enough speed to stay close to the leaders yet also stay relaxed. If world record holder David Rudisha of Kenya runs like a doe shaken from the forest, <laughs> Simmons is a bison rumbling on the open plain, running incongruously fast. But in the final 200, Simmons transformed, driving his arms and lowering his head. He would transition into a full sprint, mowing down the smoother runners who led him around the track, grimacing as if it hurt fiercely, which it did. Every mediocre wannabe middle distance runner who had known the anaerobic agony of the 800 could feel a kinship with Simmons. <laughs> so I thought that tells it well, because if you look at him from a athlete profile standpoint, he's a D3 800 meter runner from Willamette University. Yep. A guy oversized really for his event. Mm -hmm. You don't see a lot of, you know, he says he weighs 160 
five pounds, five ten. So he's a pretty stocky, well built guy. Mm-hmm. And you don't see a lot of guys that look like that in the eight hundred dominating. Not to mention the fact that he did it in a in probably other than the fifteen hundred, the event that has the most randomness to it when it comes <laughs> to championship races. And yet he was able to consistently deliver because of, as you said, that sort of style and panache, that aggressive racing. And he also evolved quite a bit throughout his career. You know, he used to be a come from behind guy who'd sit and kick, but he realized over time that that wouldn't work as he moved into the championship races and competed against higher level talent. So he evolved and started to develop a style where he ran closer to the middle and then closed. So it's just, it's fun to watch. It's someone fun to watch someone like that who has mastered his craft and then of course not to mention the fact that he's made waves outside of the sport to try to better the sport which some people I think bash him for but as as maybe self-serving but at the same time you can't deny that he's he's made life better for all track and field athletes as you say not just in this resurgent concept but also in this idea that he's helped make the sport more athlete friendly yeah, it's he's he's done he's done remarkable things. You know, one thing about that aspect of his come from behind style initially and then his, you know, run in the middle was I think as he developed from a national class athlete and then becoming a perennial national class athlete. I think his initial goals were while he wanted to make it to the world championship and he wanted to be in Olympic finals, he never saw himself as necessarily a medalist or a gold medalist. Um, and so he could continue to utilize that style to great effectiveness throughout his six national titles because you can do that at the, at, at the U.S. level. Um, but as he got hungrier and hungrier and wanted the results more and more, he had to change that style. And he's also probably fit enough, much fitter and much more capable of sustaining that each hundred having to be at specific paces in order to stay close enough, but yet have a little bit of reserve to turn on at the end. Um, anyway, just yep. hats off. We'll be missing. We'll miss. We'll miss Nick, but we know we probably won't be the last we hear of him. We'll so. hear from him. <laughs> anyway, again, hats off to Ashton and Nick. We appreciate you guys. And, and for those that are new to those names, check them out and certainly follow Nick this year as he pursues the run to the 2017 world championships well, i'm going to take a little aside just for a second just because i haven't done this yet but this podcast we are going to work on making you track fans if you aren't you know in our first our first podcast we talked about drugs and doping and and maybe that that would make the sport less interesting i still think it's a foot it's all about foot races and i think it's important to have some knowledge of what's going on locally which is why we interviewed allison and we interviewed um um paul paul but also what's going on nationally and in, in the, on the international stage. And these are things that Chris and I talk about at work on a day-to-day basis. And I just feel like um, we've, got a, we've got a wonderful bully pip pulpit here to try to push a little bit on you all opening, expanding, and, and getting more involved in watching racing. It's, it's, it's an amazing sport. So that, that was my side. We'll move on to the real topic. <laughs> we'll now. do our best <laughs> to make you fans. Okay, so we'll, we're going to talk about, as we said at the top, we're going to talk about marathon race planning and Steve and I are both coaches as we've mentioned before here at Rogue Running in Austin we coach a lot of marathoners and so today we're going to talk about marathon race planning and how an individual should sit down and prepare for all the elements that will go into race day we we have a quote that we like here around Rogue that we've used in some of our talks which says that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth (laughs) 
So we'll talk about the plan. Then we'll also talk about, you know, deviations that that's might Mike pop Tyson. up. And that's to, Mike Tyson, yeah. by the way. You got to give the give the man credit. Yes. <laughs> that's a quote from Tyson. So we'll talk about the planning and then we'll talk about what happens a little bit when you get punched in the mouth as we go. And then we'll also be in follow up episodes coming back to some of these elements and talking about it in more detail. But as it relates to a marathon race plan. I like to say to my athletes that you can either associate or dissociate going back to my psych 101 days. You can either associate with the nerves associated with an upcoming marathon or you can dissociate. Dissociation might involve going to a movie and trying to take your mind off of it. But I think better than that, and, and obviously two of those, those two things may get mixed in your preparation, but better than that is associating. And when you have those nerves pop up, when you start to worry, when you start to freak out, going back to what you can do to prepare. And a big part of that is developing a plan that accounts for all the elements. So we're going to talk about five elements of marathon race planning and, and the components that go into that. Those five are logistics, sort of mostly pre-race, but general logistics. One, two, pace strategy. Three, nutrition and hydration planning. Four, gear choices. And five, mental preparation. So those five elements, we're going to talk about what's included in each of those and and how you should think about some of the choices to make as you prepare for race day. So with that, we'll dive into the first one. Number one, talking about logistics. And as I said, this is largely pre-race stuff, but you want to make sure you're preparing for all the little details associated with a race, especially a big race. So Steve, I'll throw it to you. What will be included in logistical planning? So, um, you know, in all the things that I talk about from a coaching standpoint, my one of my major quotes is, you need to do in training or in prep what the race requires. So knowing in advance what your race is actually going to require in terms of logistics puts you in a much, much better place. Um, by the time this, this podcast will come out, we will have just gone through the Houston marathon and, um, we have a lot of athletes running the Houston marathon and a number of, a lot of athletes running the Austin marathon. And in terms of talking about that race experience and what's going to happen in terms of your corrals, how you get to your, actually get to the race start line itself, um, what your timing and all that is going to be vastly different because Houston is a much bigger race that has far more, uh, logistical constraints in terms of getting to your uh, corral in a timely manner. And Austin, you can very nearly walk up to the start line three to five minutes before the race, find your pace group or find where you need to be and get started. And in Houston, that's not possible. If you take, for example, you know, New York City, where a race starts at 10 a.m., but yet people are getting onto buses at 4.30 in the morning and then sitting on a bridge for hours with strangers, you need to account for these logistical categories and be sure that you know what they are. So, you know, to start off, number one is the night before, well, the two days before, where are you picking up your bib number? (laughs) Where is the packet pickup and how long will the packet pickup take? Um, Crucial, right? Number two, what timing do you need to get out of bed in order to gain transport to get to your start line at the right time? Which corral do you need to be into and how soon before then do you need to be in that corral? And you might not think of those logistical things as incredibly important, but they're going to add stresses. And as we talk at the very end about the fifth topic about mental prep, limiting the amount of stresses that you have, the better. So one thing I really think is important is interview people. If you're going to run a race, 
in finding your community or on the interwebs or even through Marathon Guide or other uh, review sites, ask questions or get insight about what happens for that race. How different Berlin is from New York City. How different Austin is from Houston. And once you get, people would love to talk about the race experience. So talk to them about it. We just had a we had a, a talk with our Houston marathoners, and we opened it up to the field. And people said, "Hey, the porta potties are at the very back of the of your corral." So there's a lot of porta potty action there, and there's almost no room to get into. People are standing in huge lines. If you walk towards the front of your corral, there are still more porta potties. Guess what? You might have a line of two to the porta potty if you keep walking through. Well, you've got to glean that information from other people and getting insights from folks. So your coach should be able to help you. People who have run the race, get on the website. Website. I know I know the Marathon Guide has always had a sort of a race review and talk about the races in that way. Do your research. Figure out how to manage your logistics. Yeah, and each race will have its own quirks, too. Of course, Boston and New York are different because those have, they have the, the later starts. And then Houston and Chicago are different because, mm-hmm. you know, the early starts, but they're, they're large fields with different setups. Quick story to share on this. My first marathon I did, Chicago. I was doing it with a friend and we had trained together and had prepared to race together. It would have, it would have been his second marathon, my first. And so I was hoping to have his veteran guidance as I navigated my first. So we went to the start together. We got there probably 20 minutes early and this was in 2001. So this was before Chicago became super crazy, but still was a big race. And so we, we got there a little bit early. My, my partner had, made the mistake of having a, for some odd reason, a chicken salad sandwich that morning for <laughs> breakfast <laughs> that yeah. he had bought at a convenience store. And so when we got to the, the start area, he had to go to the bathroom. I didn't, but we had 20 minutes to go. So we were kind of rushing. So we sort of said, okay, let's divide and conquer. You take our stuff, and me, you being me, I'll take our stuff to gear check and drop it there. You go to the bathroom, we'll meet back at this tree. And we pointed to a tree that seemed to have a unique <laughs> profile. And then we both went and did our things and came back. I came back to a tree that I thought was the right tree. He <laughs> went back to a tree that he thought was the right tree, but they happened to be different trees. <laughs> and so by this point, there was probably five minutes to go till the gun. And I also, you know, so, so I started scrambling around looking for him, couldn't find him. The gun goes off. People start taking off. And at some point, probably five minutes after that, I just said, well, I got to just go. So I never found him, jumped into the race (laughs) later than I should have from a pace perspective and ended up having a frustrating first marathon experience because it didn't happen with my training partner and I had to start later than I wanted to. So the pacing wasn't exactly right as I, as I got going. So those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. And I think experienced marathoners often make the mistake of thinking, well, I've done this before. It's no big deal. And they may forget to go through some of these steps. But I kind of think of it like when you're doing algebra and you learned in high school to write every step of algebra so that you didn't forget a number or a variable. It's sort of like that as an experienced marathoner. I think you want to write down all these elements and think about them so that you're sure not to make mistakes because there's no reason to do something silly you know, just because you got a little bit complacent. And, you know, with that story, I also add to your list of things already in the pre-race planning. If you do plan to run with someone, (laughs) plan a meetup spot and plan a meetup (laughs) spot that's appropriate given 
the the crowds you yeah. know so often i'll tell people like chicago for example if you're gonna run with somebody meet them at the hotel or meet them outside the start area because once you get there you're probably not and gonna stay find together and then stay yeah and then stay <laughs> together yeah you know this is the one aspect of the of all the five that we talk about this is the one aspect that's absolutely inexcusable to not get right because it's got no personal experience, you know, idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies to it. There's no, there's one way to run a race prep. There's one way to have your, your pacing and there's another way to run. No, this stuff is super simple. When you get off the plane, you should have a plan. When you get to the expo, you should have a plan. When you get to your, the night before you should have a plan and all, and they should be ones that you can use repeatedly. They will need to be tweaked a little bit. They may need to be adjusted for the location and other things, but it's not, it's just, you don't want to be in a situation about making a rookie mistake. Even our most experienced athletes that we coach, maybe 15, 20 plus marathons and run at fast paces, they still make boneheaded decisions because they don't have a checklist. And I really highly recommend going through those areas and having a checklist. And then if you miss something, the subsequent marathon that you run, you can make sure that you add that area that you missed to the checklist and you'll get more and more robust. And it'll also calm you down, as we talked about, and, and make you a little more le- a little less nervous about all the steps and all the, the variables that can come into play. Yep. So that's logistics. There may be a few other things you can toss in there, as I said, depending on the race, but that covers the bulk of the elements for the logistics. Let's go to pace strategy. And within this bucket, there's lots of elements and we're not going to go too much into how to create a race plan because that's something we'll cover later and, and you should talk to your coach about. But we will give you some elements to think about here. One of the big ones, Steve, is how you're going to approach it whether you try to run a negative split, meaning you run the second half faster than the first, you try to run an even split race, or some people I know think that banking time is the answer, so they kind of plan for a positive split race. So from a strategic standpoint, how do you think about it? So first of all, in almost every case, um, and I would have told you before I met um, one athlete who I've worked with, uh, I would have said in every case, but um, I always start from a negative split. Um, in my opinion, uh, the amount of time that it takes, uh, that you're out on the course and the difficulties that every course has, and just the factor of running out of fuel over 26.2 miles, I'm coming at it from a negative split perspective, nearly 90 to 95% of the time. Um, and so from that, then I need to have some compelling reason why I might not be negative splitting. So, and a negative split is important to understand a negative split can be anything from, you know, losing only 10 seconds in the first five to six miles. So you're a minute behind, um, your goal time. And then only having to make up those 60 seconds over the remaining, you know, 20 miles of the race, that's a negative split, but I wouldn't call that an aggressive negative split. Um, I coached someone recently for the Austin marathon a year ago who basically I told him, I want you to PR for the 10 K in your final 10 K of the marathon. Um, and so we went out super conservatively. He ran faster than his goal time and he did PR for the 10 K in the final 10 K. He had a really soft 10 K PR, <laughs> but it, it's still something you wouldn't necessarily consider doing, but that was, that's what I would call a very aggressive plan. So just determining which route you're going to come at it and why you're going to come at it. And some of these other factors we'll talk about in a second play into that. But I want to go back to, I had an individual who I coached about three or four years ago, who I said, I would never do a 
I would never do a positive split or I would never do a banking time plan. But this athlete was running. We knew that he, we knew where his fitness was exactly very, very closely. This is uh, Mark Bergman. Yep, so of course he had told me he was, he knew that I had a, a, a tendency to negative split everything. And we sat down in our one-on-one meeting and he said to me, I really feel like I want to positive split this and let me give you my arguments but I'm willing to listen to your input and to figure it out. And he went through his arguments, were basic, which were basically, I am know that it's going to be close to impossible to reach this goal time, and so I want to know where I stand very early on, and I want to hold on by my fingertips off the edge of a cliff to get there. And I said, well, if you're tough enough to do that, go for it. And he was. But, you know, we went through that. We made a plan in advance, and um, he succeeded at it. Now, I will give one bit of warning about any banking time plan. It's my rule of three. If you're a minute ahead of your half mar- at the half marathon on what you were hoping to run from your pacing, that's not even even split, but that's just what you were hoping to pace, I can almost guarantee you you will be three minutes behind at the finish line. Think about that. That's how important it is to be slower at the beginning or at least on pace at the beginning so you can take advantage of the final miles and not be crawling on hands and knees with tears and completely bonked out. So. Yeah. As I say, you don't want to bank time. You want to bank energy. (laughs) So start conservatively, save your energy, because if you've done your work in training, you will have something left to close it out. It should also be mentioned, you know, we generally at Rogue think about course profile matters as well. So the type of course plays into this discussion as you put together your race plan. Boston is a race, for example, a Boston Marathon, where you typically, Steve, I know, recommend a slightly positive split because of the course profile. Austin Marathon, which we'll talk about soon in terms of our pace strategy for Austin, is one that you have to negative split because of the dangers of the first half and the hills and so forth. So if you go out too hard in Austin, you're going to be crying, (laughs) as we say, on Duval instead of rolling on Duval to close quickly. So it does depend on the course profile. We also prefer that our athletes break it up by sections and and not necessarily do it mile by mile. I know a lot of people like to create a mile by mile plan, but that doesn't necessarily give you wiggle room for the variation that's naturally going to happen because of, you know, you're just not going to nail every single mile. I've never had an athlete run marathon goal pace for 26.2 miles right. i've had them finish the marathon <laughs> at their goal pace but i've never had right. them run every mile that you're way. always going to be plus or minus so we recommend that you split it up into sections for some races like chicago it plays out nicely to, to maybe do 5k sections or three or five mile sections for a race like austin you kind of break it up by course profile so i recommend six sections for that race but they're all different chunks depending on the course profile so you want to think about how does the marathon naturally break up into chunks and then develop a strategy and pace plan for each chunk knowing that you're never going to nail a mile by mile plan the other thing that goes into pace strategy is pacers and how do you think about whether you use the pacers that are provided or not what are your thoughts there uh it's very simple i never trust a pacer 
that doesn't mean pacers aren't good people, but I would never, the only times I ever recommend my athletes use a pacer is if they're going to run, bake an aggressive split and they run a five, they run in the pace group five minutes slower than what they're running so that they can stay calm, cool and collected in a group of people while they're running significantly slower. In that case, it's about 10 seconds to 15 seconds per mile slower, which feels so easy. That's the only time I ever recommend using a pacer. Um, I don't even recommend using pacers. I rarely recommend using pacers if they're your bro or your girl. Um, <laughs> I I have occasionally done that when I know, like Chris was a pacer recently right. at Chicago for a group of our athletes. Well, I was I, I had a 100% confidence in his ability to dial it in and knock it down and make it happen. And you knew you had a window that you were going to do it for. And, and that was a little bit of a different situation. But there are so many different things that go into people's experiences of a race. Um, many people have different philosophies about what that course should, how it should be run. If you are going to use a pacer, be sure you go to their website and read their pace philosophy. And then if you get a chance, go buy you. Most of these pacers have at their expo a booth that you can go and ask them what their philosophy is. And if you could possible for you to find the actual one or two people that will be pacing you even better. In that case, I would say then maybe you got a 50% chance of trusting them. But even then, I would still be only using them as guide, as 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 like that imaginary line we talk about in swimming. When you watch the Olympics in the swimming, you see that red line sort of showing where the world record is. That's you. You stay where you need to in order to get to that red line or get to those pace groups late in the race, so you can go by them. Yeah, I mean, two notes on pacers for me. One is that having cheered at a lot of marathons, also, you often late in the race see. Two, one of two things either the pacers are gone they're blown up <laughs> and they're not on pace or and they've thrown their signs away and maybe they still have their bib on or they have nobody with them <laughs> you know like is often the case in austin because those pacers at austin particularly are running even splits that's their that's the instruction they're given and yet the austin course isn't a course that sets up well for even splits given the terrain so you know, again, as you said, why would you trust a pacer when this is someone you don't know? You don't know how much they've trained. You don't know how prepared they are. You don't know if they have practice at that pace. You don't know how that pace relates to their personal best time. It could be five or 10 minutes faster and they're trying to pace you, you know, on their edge already. So those are the types of things where you're kind of putting your hands in someone else's or you're putting your goals in someone else's hands. And that's, that's crazy to me. So yeah. You but control know, what you can control. But but listen to us, folks. We understand why you're thinking that way. And we know that, that, it, that you feel like that will take a huge burden off of yourself. But then you have just given your likelihood of success and you put it in the hands of someone, as Chris said, that's a stranger. So you need to really think closely about whether or not you want someone else to be the master of your domain or the captain of your ship. And as we said, we have no interest in either. We do not suggest that in any way. Another thing that's important for strategy, which we need to talk about really quickly, is to be sure your race plan has t accounted for the weather. Because weather is such a crucial and crucial piece of what happens in what happens over a three hour, two, you know, two and a half hour, three hour, three and a half hour, four hour, five hour period of time. And knowing how that heat and that weather is going to increase or decrease, as the case may be, as you go along. We're, we're, we're sending this missive to you from 
you know, Austin, Texas, and Texas is notorious for the weather. Blink, wait two seconds, it'll change. So you you can't get it dialed in exactly the way you might want to, but you still have a basic idea of how to deal with it, and you can make your race plan accordingly. So don't, and it is, is probably one of the biggest mistakes people will make, is to lock and load on their race plan, regardless of what happens with weather. If it is hot and it is humid, you are going to be cooking from the inside out and you are going to have to make an adjustment for your pace. You need to plan for weather to be a factor. Um, if you don't, then you will pay the price. Yep. So think about weather. Overall pace strategy, again, as I said, we'll talk about specific pace conversations relative to specific plans another time. But for this one, you want to think about overall strategy, negative, positive, even splits. Think about your course profile, how you're going to chunk up the race in different chunks to attack from a pace perspective. And then what are you going to do both with pacers or, and also with contingencies like weather, as we've talked about. So that's pace strategy. Let's talk now about nutrition and hydration. And this really starts pre-race, which I think some people don't often really think about those meals the day before and the meals the morning of. So what do you think about nutrition wise? We'll start there and then we'll go to hydration. So I would say I'm going to mix them a little bit because um, I think you need to start paying attention to what you're doing with your body a week out. So I usually tell people on the Sunday prior, you should start your hydration plan. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that is, but I just wanted to bring that up. And then also you want to eat a little leaner and you want to eat a little cleaner. You just want to watch what you're eating and be sure that you're, you're eating foods that are normal, that you've eaten before. I don't believe in a, in a, in a, I'm not a fan of a carbo loading. I would greatly prefer my athletes to eat what they normally eat, but just be sure that they're eat that they're not suddenly making big changes as adding a whole bunch of sriracha three days or four <laughs> days before. It's gonna be a that could be problematic. You know, so eat what you normally eat, but just make sure you're eating as clean as you possibly can during that that process. Another thing I recommend though too is this will seem like a little bit of a dichotomy though, it's is to be sure you eat salty foods. Um, frequently we don't get enough electrolytes in our system. And if you choose to eat saltier foods, most of us can get our electrolytes from that kind of a source. So if you're not adding your, if you're not in race tab, if you're not using, a uh, salt tabs or other things, then just be sure maybe you throw a little bit more salt in your diet than you normally do. Eat some pretzels, maybe a few more eat. Pizza is a fantastically sodium-laden food or ramen or something of that nature. But choose foods that have a little bit higher salt content because your body will sort of, sort of store those. And I think if you're going to load anything, loading your electrolytes is a much better plan necessarily than loading your carbohydrates. Um, so then I go in. So I do a week before. Then I go day prior, which is mostly night before. Uh, then morning of. That needs to be another category that you look at. And then what's your plan in the race? So week out, which isn't the most important thing, but really the, the day and the night prior, then that's one chunk. Morning of, it's another chunk. And in race is another chunk. Um, everybody should probably do the same things between week prior and day prior. But everybody will, many of us will have very different plans on the morning of and in in race. And I have seen people use plans that are so farly divergent, but yet perfectly effective for them. And so I always just make sure they understand what their plan is. I don't try to critique their plan too much unless we have more and more information about what they succeeded with in years prior or races prior and those kinds of things. So, yeah, and we won't talk about the options here because... 
you know, as you said earlier, it's all about doing what you know, Mm. sticking with what works for you. What have you used on long runs and what has worked? Whether we're talking about, you know, pizza or pasta the night before or whether we're talking about gels versus chomps or blocks, you know, in terms of the chewy stuff on race, you know, during the race, do what you know and don't change it. The most important thing is that you have a plan, you write it down and that you follow it because, you know, Steve and I have done a pre-race talk that we titled Famous Last Words. We did this before (laughs) the Chicago Marathon in the fall where we basically teed up some quotes that we often hear from people after the race, after the races about what went wrong. And one of them is maybe they skipped a gel or they didn't do something that they had planned to do from a nutrition standpoint, standpoint, either because they felt good or because they dropped something or they maybe ran out. And so they didn't account for that part of the plan and just follow it. Right. You know, and that's why I think as we, we talked about kind of writing this stuff down, I think it's so important to write it down because when you write something down, you internalize it and then you're more likely to execute it. And then what happens if you've decided to take gels every five miles or four miles or six miles, it doesn't matter. Do it, (laughs) do it no matter what happens in that moment or how you feel. So I do have two specifics I'd like to share with folks that I think are important. Um, the first relates to hydration, and I call it hyperhydrating. I think the week before you need to start hyperhydrating, and that by that I mean drinking more water than you normally normally do. And this is water and water only. I my recommendation is a gallon a day, um, but you must start that a week before. You can't start it two days before. If you're going to start it two days before, just do what you normally do. But if you're going to do a hyperhydration plan, start a week before and start drinking a gallon of water a day. If you eat a normal diet, if you eat some salty foods, your body will find its equilibrium. Your bladder will get accustomed to the fact that it's got more water in it. You'll top off your water reserves and your hydrative reserves, and you'll be in a great position going forward. Uh, then my last my suggestion is if you follow that plan, stop the hyperhydrating at about 12 o'clock noon or 1 p.m., the day before your race so that you can finally exit most of the bladder full bladder scenario and you're able to get some good sleep the night before you're not you're already nervous what happens you you're, you're nervous you can't sleep you stand at the ceiling you finally fall asleep maybe one o'clock two o'clock in the morning you drop into that great REM sleep zone and then you've got to take a giant piss <laughs> you've you, and you wake up and now what are you doing? Now you're staring at the ceiling again because you didn't take care of finding that right position hydrating. And honestly, that's why hyperhydrating does not work late because you will completely flush your system of all its electrolytes and you will be washed out by the sixth or seventh mile. So that's the first thing is I do really do highly, highly recommend hyperhydrating, but just do it with plenty, plenty of time. And the final thing is whatever you do, don't do something new the morning of. Um, I'm a big fan of the product you can. I think it works for many, many people and the people that it does work for, it's amazing. But guess what? I've had a few people who decided based on someone's suggestion 24 hours before the race to do a little you can and they had a lot of problems during right. the race. So don't do anything new, which is sort of a rookie thing, but it's really important not to do anything new the day of your race. The other thing that's worth mentioning here is water stop planning. You should look at the course map, see where the water stop's going to be And then, as I said, just write down what your plan is for each one and when you're going to plan to grab something and what. 
For me, it works well to skip the first stop, which is always crazy. And then I'll start with the second stop and alternate if it's normal weather between water and Gatorade from there on out. So I'm just grabbing something at every stop, no matter what, which will be every two to three miles, depending on the race and just alternating Gatorade and water to get electrolytes and a little bit of sugars through the Gatorade. And that's what works for me because I don't have to really think about it. And if it's a warm day, I'll grab, I'll do the same thing, but I'll grab both at each stop. Mm-hmm. And so just think about how you're, how you're incorporating those water stops into your plan, how that relates to what you're doing from a gel or, or, uh, chomps or blocks or you can perspective and of course salt pills and make sure all those things are working together and you're ready to go and execute it as you plant so anything else there on nutrition hydration just that you know we're talking about what's happening in about the week beforehand um, but um, I have so many people ask me what they should do nutritionally um, before races Um, but they always seem to ask me a week before (laughs) many of these things, they just have to be worked out in, in the, in the training that you have. So I will ask my athletes, uh, randomly, usually throughout a cycle, have you practiced your gel plan in your training yet? Or have you practiced your, what are you doing in the morning of, but you all who don't have coaches, you should be thinking about that occasionally and being sure that some of your long runs include all the products that you'll be taking and preferably done at the paces that you'll be running. So you can learn how to crush a cup and suck the water out. So you can learn how to take a pill down if you're going to take a pill down and you've got to practice these things. So, you know, that's outside the kind of the construct of what we're talking about, but I think it's important to kind of remind people if you are running Boston or you're running a spring marathon, you should be starting to work on those things now um, and, and get them dialed in because they're really important to your success. Speaking of practicing what you're going to do on race day, I think that is a good segue into our next section. So we've talked about logistics. We've talked about pace strategy. We've talked about now nutrition and hydration. The fourth category, as we mentioned, is gear choices. And you got to think about how you're going to prepare for the race. And a lot of this you want to practice beforehand as well, particularly as it relates to footwear and apparel, which are the obvious gear choices. One of the things I wanted to mention before I throw it to you, Steve, is the Garmin. A lot of times people are using a Garmin, but they're not thinking about how they're going to use it on race day as it relates to their strategy and how also the GPS may or may not be connecting you know, Chicago Marathon is notorious for having big buildings. You also go through a tunnel in the first mile, in which case your GPS is not usually reading by that point. And if it is, it's giving you some random reading. So a lot of times people get thrown off by that and freak out. So there's a couple of different ways you can handle that. The other element I, I did mention is that because you're not running the tangents, your Garmin's going to be either off or a little bit longer than the actual race itself. So that can throw people off when it comes to looking at their splits. So there's a couple of different tactics to think about related to your Garmin. I, I encourage you just to consider it and practice one of these in a workout before you do it on race day. But one of them is just turning your GPS off and using the lap splits to help monitor your pace at each mile marker. That's my preferred strategy because then I don't have to worry about what the GPS is doing. I'll just split it each lap and that'll be my check-in on where I am pace-wise. But you can turn the GPS off for your Garmin. The other thing you can do is is keep it on, but also continue to do the lap split. So you're kind of getting both information. So you're looking at what the GPS pace is, but you're also seeing your real-time pace as you come through the laps. 
so that you can compare the two and kind of adjust accordingly. The third strategy, which I learned from one of our super eager engineering minded runners is that you can adjust the auto lap on your Garmin to not maybe one mile, but to 1.0 something miles so that it's auto lapping closer to the actual mile markers, accounting for some of those tangents, assuming you're going to run 0.2 or 0.3 longer than actually 26.2. That's the most creative strategy I've heard for this, for this, for this question and this issue. But it works for that individual and it's just something you need to think about so that you're not freaking out because your data is weird. Yep. What else should we be thinking about in the gear category, Steve? Well, shoes, you know, I think that this is, it's such a crucial critical thing because you're, you're spending three, four, five hours in them. Um, and you typically haven't spent that much time in that pair of shoes all at one time. So just make sure you've got your shoes dialed in. You know what you're going to be wearing, um, that you've got it. You've got a, a pair that's not at its fifth hundred, five hundredth mile, and it's going to crush, crash on you right at the end of the race. But get that set up and make sure you know what your sh- what's going on with your shoes. Apparel appropriate for the weather, appropriate for the circumstances. One thing I think that's really interesting: if you got a cold weather day, or even a day, you know, those of us who are in Central Texas, even a fifty to 50 degree to 45 degree morning can feel extremely chilly. So you'll be riding in a singlet, but you need to bring a sweatshirt for the start line and maybe a a toss off sweatshirt through the first three to four miles and toss it off on the course. But have an idea of what gear you might be needing given different weather conditions in different scenarios. Um, I'm going to make a shout out to my boy, James Dodds. Make sure you have your dip strips or (laughs) whatever else you're using to be sure that we don't bleed down the front of our shirts. Gentlemen, please Protect take care nipples. of that. Yes, it's uh, not only is it incredibly embarrassing, but you're going to have to have lots of pictures all over the all over with you in that scenario. So take care of that. Um, what other gear choices? Well, you know, one thing is whether you wear a hat or you don't wear a hat. You know, on sunny days it can be very very helpful. Um, but knowing, you know, I have, an, I have an athlete who wears sunglasses all the time, no matter what. Um, you know, just know what they are, as we've talked about in every one of these categories so far. Have a plan and follow your plan. But make sure your plan is adjusting for weather, conditions, and um, and then bring the stuff. Because if you don't put it in your bag and it doesn't get into that bag when you're reaching for it on race morning, um, I promise you you're going to have a less than optimal pre-race moment when you realize one of the crucial pieces of the puzzle you didn't bring so check it and check it twice you might have a packing checklist this plan you write down here Mm -hmm. could be your packing checklist i think it's also worth mentioning that on the on the have versus buy their choice sometimes it's hot i recommend my athletes not to wear hats on warm days because then you hold the heat in the top of your head if you're going to wear something wear a visor so that you can get that heat release and then potentially dump things on your head if you need to, need to to cool down. But I think a hat on a warm day can be tricky. I would rather someone, if sun's going to be an issue, wear a visor or sunglasses. And then, of course, as we've said probably more times in this podcast and before than we than we than we possibly ever could anything else. Don't try anything new. Don't go to the expo <laughs> and buy something cool or buy a new pair of shoes that you think might work better than what you'd brought. Well, buy something cool. Please go <laughs> buy true. something cool. Just don't buy something and use it on race day. Exactly. <laughs> Certainly not a shirt 
The number of people wearing their marathon race shirt before a race, it's, um, Chris can tell you there's two or three real pet peeves I have. This one is number two on the list. I'll leave number one alone. I don't want to get into big right. trouble with our listeners. But So don't buy something at the expo and wear it for race day. That is a no-no. But one, a no-no I've heard experienced marathoners make the mistake of doing, which to me is baffling. But but that's you know that's for another conversation. So as we said, Know what you're going to do technology-wise. Know what you're going to do apparel and footwear-wise and then accessory-wise. The only other thing I'll mention is some people choose, might choose, especially on a warm day or maybe if they don't want to worry about the early water stops, is bringing a bottle or handheld for those first few miles so that you can sip it and take your hydration early on and not have to worry about we're going to the side with the masses when the early race is crazy. So consider yeah, maybe a hydration tool as well, a fuel belt for some that works as a way to carry carry their hydration. So that's the other element to think about. You know, I think that that's not only important for what's going on in the first miles as you try to bypass, especially New York and Chicago where the first aid stations are they have they're incredibly well manned but there's a lot of bodies all of a sudden going off to them you get to bypass all that and run free but another thing people don't really listen think about you're really nervous before the start of a marathon and sometimes that nervousness gets to be cotton mouth and the really really dry mouth and having a little bit of water just to wet your whistle and just it, it can make all the difference in the world in terms of how you're feeling before the gun goes off so I, I can't recommend enough bringing a water bottle to the start line one other piece about footwear I just want to finish up with People will tell you don't wear a shoe for the first time in a marathon, but you can still purchase a shoe the week, even a week out and still effectively use it, especially if it's a shoe that you've worn in the past. Um, so don't be afraid to go get that new shoe or get that new bit of gear as long as you've got a chance to wear it a little bit. In shoes especially, you don't need to get a 25-mile run in a shoe in order for it to be effective. You just need to make sure that there's nothing going on on the inseams. There's nothing going on with the way that shoe was constructed in the – that individual shoe was constructed at the factory. And just make sure you don't have any problems with that. But I had somebody a couple of years ago say, well, you said don't get any new shoes. And so they ran in a pair of you know 600-mile shoes, and they were just devastated. Their legs were bombed out at the end and I was like why didn't you get and I I had to take I had to cop to the fact that I said don't get new shoes but you can a week out as long as you've got a chance to get a spin in them yeah shoes these days break in very quickly yes okay so that's our fourth category fifth category and potentially the most important is mental preparation and we're going to do a series on mental training and mental preparation so you're going to be hearing more for us, from us about this topic. But as it relates to marathon race planning, what are the mental elements that they should be noting and jotting down on this plan, Steve? Okay, so as, as Chris mentioned, we're going to go into a lot more of this. Um, but th- they, this falls into a couple of basic categories. Um, number one, it's knowing the purpose for why you're running this race. This is crucial and, and, and critically important. You need to know if you're on the starting line and you're just doing it because you want to get to the finish line, then just make sure you know that and that you know that that purpose is what it is and that you don't change that in the middle of the race and suddenly want to run sub three hours when really what you wanted to do was finish. Be really clear on your purpose because as you get out on that race course, things are going to change. And um, if you're clear on your purpose, then at least you're in a position of being able to make a decisive, making good decisions as you're out there dealing with that. That's as simple as just saying, why am I running this particular race on this given day? 
Um, anybody that's heard me give marathon talks before, you know, I like to get a lot more existential with it and I would love to go into people's worldviews and why they view these things, but that's not in the context of what we're talking about today. Today, it's mostly important. Just know the purpose for getting on that starting line and be sure you're clear about it. That helps a lot. And to clarify, it's, it could be a bigger purpose. It might not be my purpose is to run a three hour, four hour marathon. It might be to prove something to somebody, to yourself. There could be a lot of reasons that might actually be existential, uh, but it's important to know why you're there. And I think it's really important to write that out because anything that's glib or not really real, it will, it will suffer under the pain of you actually looking at it and reading it. Then I recommend you read it out loud to the mirror. If you can't do that, then you're in trouble. So you need to be able to read it aloud and know that that's really your purpose for doing it. Um, the next thing is, uh, this is really crucial. It's you need to be expecting suffering. There is no way that you are not going to suffer in 26.2 miles. I have never, I've coached thousands of marathoners. I have never had anybody say, oh, that was easy. It was completely pain-free. Never once. Somewhere you're going to reach what, St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And you are going to be in a place where what you thought you were going to have accomplished doesn't work out and you have to make an adjustment and you have to deal with suffering. As Mike Tyson said it, and we said it earlier, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I promise you, in 26.2 miles, you will be punched in the face. Expect it. And then if you expect it, it becomes a little bit less of a freak out session when it happens. What I say to my athletes is a lot of times in order of managing expecting suffering is to create a problem solving process. So I ask my athletes to write down three different things that might happen to them during the course of a, of the course of a prep from the time they get in their vehicle to go either on the plane or drive to the, to the, to the course itself that they have a plan for different things that could possibly go wrong or different things that could potentially cause suffering for them and then write out how they will respond to it. If they do that, then they've got a much better ability to deal with the problems that are out there and deal with the suffering in the moment because they have already prepped for some kind of suffering or some kind of challenge. The actual challenge itself isn't that important, but you have to start processing managing these challenges you know um it, it's it's an incredibly powerful step to take if you do it effectively and do it right and we'll talk a little bit more about what that actually looks like when we do um our other mental prep discussions but i do think expecting suffering becomes a lot easier when you've got a problem solving ability and the ability to adjust and manage so define your purpose write down some potential challenges and how you're going to react to them some other elements that we recommend is that you convert that purpose also into some mantras, yep. which can basically take that overarching reason why and translate it into a word or phrase that hopefully you can go to to snap you out of the suffering or that you can focus on through the suffering, which which reminds you of why you're there. Two, and, quick, two quick rules of mantras, yep. three to four syllables maximum. They could be one, two, three, or four syllables maximum, and they have to be positive. If the word can't or don't or won't is in that, do not use that because you will find plenty of other reasons during the race to come up with negative mantras. You don't need any help practicing those things. They'll come out, and you can grab a hold of them and use them in the race if they work for you, but you don't want to be prepping for those mantras in the week before and just setting yourself up for a negative thinking process. So keep them short and sweet and keep them positive. One of them... Just as an example that I used last year, I believe, when I was 
going for a marathon PR was simply every second counts. Mm. I knew that my race, if I were to PR, was going to be a narrow one given where I am or where I was at the time. And so every second counts was my reminder to myself that don't don't let any second pass where you let up or give something back because you never know if that might be the second that ticks you past yeah. the goal. So that's one example. But I think these the thing about purpose and mantras are very personal. So you have to find, you can't take someone else's. You have to find your own purpose and then translate that into words and phrases that mean something very specifically to you. So I think very often these mantras aren't going to be the same from person to person, even if they had a similar purpose. I agree. There's another there's another added thing that I would tell pe- that I tell people is I ask my athletes to come up with three different mantras. I make them do it in advance and I make them send them to me so that I can actually approve them. It's one of their pieces of homework they have to do with me as an athlete. Um, and I have another one of the rules I have about that beyond it being short and to the point and positive is that the first one can be one that you've used in the past um, because our past running associations and running races, we really frequently, when we've had good ones, we want to jump on that train again. And it's super, it's nice to have one that's effective and is useful, but you don't want to do all three of them based on the past. You want to make the next two something that are very, that is very specific about your last most recent training cycle or one of the last recent races that you've run where you've learned some lessons and you've gone through something that's recent and new because they're going to resonate with you the best. They're also make you go through your training cycle and find the positives out of what you've actually done. And man, when you've got experiences that are yours lived in, lived through experiences, and you can turn them into a positive association, the power in that is extremely strong. Um, so that's what I do is I try to make them use something from their actual training cycle to try to, to try to pull in something recently over the last three, four, five months that, have, that they've had success with and utilize that in the race itself and in, in the creation of a mantra, which hopefully you use in the race. The other thing I would mention here is that you want to also prepare some other mental tactics or at least have them in your quiver. We talked about having a toolkit before as it related to footwear, but you also need sort of a mental toolkit that you can tap into when things get tough. A couple of them that I recommend for my athletes, one late in a marathon, which is great, is the sort of go fishing idea that mm. you know, if you're not passing people at the end of a marathon, then you're probably slowing down because for the most part, that's what's happening to people. So looking ahead at 50, 100 meters to find a shirt that that jumps out of you and then going to get that person can often give you a purpose in the moment that distracts you from the pain. Another one I use that's most effective really late in the race, like the last last mile, for example, or maybe the last half mile is counting. This is something I used to dissociate from pain where I'll count to 30 and push for 30 seconds, knowing that I can do anything for 30 seconds. And so if I just push through for 30 seconds, I can get more out of myself And then sometimes at the end of 30 seconds, I feel good and keep going, or sometimes I'll restart that process, but it's something to do that gives my, occupies my mind away from the negative thoughts and focus focuses me on the task at hand at hand. So those are some other tactics to pull in and maybe write down to think about using in addition to going back to the mantras that we've talked about. You know, so many people, this kind of touches on gear, but I'm not a, I'm not, I'm a big music fan, but I can't listen to music while I run, but some people do. And um, if you are going to use a playlist, it's really important that that playlist is curated 
in an effective way for what you're going to be going through. You don't want to suddenly be crooning Celine Dion at the thirty <laughs> at the twenty third mile. You need to have it on well, Eye of the Tiger, ACDC, <laughs> Eye of the Tiger, so whatever works for you, whatever makes it work. But you need to have that that experience curated. You, you don't want to be you, you don't have the time or the or the neuromuscular skills to click through to the to the next song, and you very well may be stuck listening to um, the wind beneath my wings or something like that. I mean, whoever has that on their playlist, I, we need to have a conversation. But, you know, it is it is important if you do those things that they're curated and they know that they make sense with what you're doing. So. My wife is an expert at this. She'll spend hours curating her playlist to, to be timed <laughs> perfectly for how she might feel at any point. So if anybody needs tips on that, consult me and I'll point you in her direction. So th- that's the mental element. And again, we'll talk about mental preparation, mental training a little bit more as we go. But those are that gives you some things to think about, some things to write down. The only other thing I'll say related to that, and then we'll kind of close things out, is visualization is a really important part, especially in those last few weeks. So as you develop this plan and prepare for how you're going to execute your race, both physically and with your gear and with all the other elements on race day, you want to visualize that race in your final training runs, maybe while you're daydreaming at your desk in a 10-minute break at work. So... Visualize every piece of it from the first mile to the finish line with the time goal that you want. Because as you think about all of these things, you want to see yourself do it in your mind's eye. Because then you're prepared. You've gone through it at least mentally before you actually go through it physically. And that's a huge tool for me and has worked magic. But it's something psychologists tell us is, is a tool for anyone. So I'd highly recommend visualization. So with that, we'll wrap it. Again, five areas to think about in your planning. We talked about logistics, pace strategy, nutrition, hydration, gear, and then your mental prep. But highly recommend you go through this checklist of items, plan for it, and write it down so that you will execute your race. Because it's really all about controlling what you can control with a marathon. There will be lots that is out of your control, but if you can control what you can control with these elements, you're more likely to succeed. And you know, we're... We've done this a lot. We're, we're very experienced in preparing our athletes for the marathon distance. But some of you may have come up with things that have worked for you that we haven't discussed. And there's a spot on our web, on the uh, iTunes to give us comments and feedback about what we've done. And get on there and tell us if we missed something egregiously that we needed to put in there. And um, we'll, uh, we'll look at maybe we'll turn that into something else. But, that, you know, it's uh, – we're, we have a lot of experience, but we're not infallible. We, we love to hear what other people's ideas are and interact with you guys with that stuff. And we're so. always learning. Okay, so with that, we'll end our sort of main topic for the day. We'll close it with our training tip, and we're running a little bit long, so bear with us. For this, since we're talking about marathon race planning, we thought we'd close with some training tips on the taper. Usually, most marathon plans, including ours, in the final few two to three weeks have a taper involved where you cut back your mileage and you prepare the body for race. They allow it to rest and get ready for that pinnacle performance. So what are some tips on the taper, Steve? So, you know, the specific workouts that you actually do, whether one or two workouts over the last two to three weeks really aren't that important. Um, Chris and I both throw different workouts at our athletes um, in the final week. So it's funny, Chris actually does my taper, but he suggests to his athletes a different taper, which is really the big difference between advanced marathoners and experienced marathoners versus beginner marathoners. But it's also, 
it's in the context of the overall program that you've had. There are some key things you need to think about, though. You absolutely need to drop your mileage by a minimum of 15%. And I recommend that in the first week. And I also recommend continuing to drop it between 10 and 15% as it feels good to you. If you have no experience with this at all, then just follow the 15% rule. Third week, three weeks out from your race, drop it 15%. Two weeks out, either hold, and then the final week, drop it another 15%. And you'll usually sit about 30 you know, to 35 or 40% lower than your weekly mileage going into that last week. And almost everybody feels okay with that. Many of my athletes taper, do much of a less taper, but they have a lot of experience. They've had experiences where the legs feel flushed and heavy and they don't feel good. And so we limit the taper for them. I have people who do almost no taper at all. But if you're new at this and you're trying to figure out what to do, don't focus on what the actual workout you're doing for that week is. Think about just lowering your volume. That's the most important thing you can do. And my suggestion is if you've got quality sessions, keep them relatively similar to what you've been doing, depending on what you've been doing, and then and then drop your other daily runs. If you run six days a week, make sure all your easy runs during that week are much lower. And then your quality workout can be a little bit closer to what you've done so you get that same ease of feeling and, and motion. But again, taper is a really hard thing to talk about because it's so idiosyncratic and everybody has a different feeling. But for sure, lower your mileage. That's the most important thing you can do. It is individual. So learn over time as you do marathons what works for you and then adapt that with each subsequent taper. I think there's a couple of things I would mention. One, as you referenced, the work is more or less done. Bill Bowerman, the famous Oregon coach and Nike co-founder, would say the hay is in the barn, <laughs> meaning you've done the work. So at this point, all you can really do is screw it up. So if you're not sure how hard to push it, err on the conservative side in those final few weeks so that you don't do anything that causes injury or pushes you over that edge because the work largely is done. The other thing I would say is just recognize what we like to call taper madness, <laughs> which is that in those two to three weeks, you're running a little bit less and your body's recovering from the hard work that you've done. So you start to feel a little bit wonky, not to mention the fact that you have time on your hands. So you start to think and your nerves start to catch up with you and you start to really worry. You know, you think about, you think you're gaining weight, you think you're getting slower and, and you think everything's going to shit. So recognize that. And I've done 14 marathons myself I've never not experienced taper madness at, <laughs> to some point, to some degree, even though I'm an experienced marathoner, I know it's coming. I know my mind's going to play tricks on me, but every single time because of that anxiety leading up to race day, you freak out a little bit. So just recognize that that's going to come and it's okay. It's normal. You're going to feel weird, fit, weird physically as your body kind of adapts to the lower training loads and prepares you for race day. That's not you getting less fit. That's getting you getting more ready for the pinnacle day, just recognize that. And then when you do freak out, go back to your plan and focus on what you can control. Like we said at the beginning. So those are our taper tips. I have one more though. Here we go. You're gonna have phantom pains, <laughs> right? Something's going to hurt. Your Achilles has all of a sudden never had any problem. And it's going to suddenly feel painful. Your it band is going to quote unquote flare up. Not, no, you're, you are freaking out. This is a part <laughs> of taper madness. Run through it. Don't worry about it. Almost all of those, unless you stepped in a hole, right? Unless you stepped in a hole, it's probably just part of the taper process. So phantom pains, ignore them, carry on. Yep. And with that, we will taper this episode. <laughs> 
So thanks for listening. Hopefully you learned a little bit. As always, thanks for joining us. Check us out also at roguerunning.com or on Facebook forward slash rogue running on Twitter and Instagram at rogue running. We'd love to, to hear from you to talk, to talk to us. And if you're in Austin, come, come see us, come train with us. And And thanks for your patience today. We ran a little long, I think, but (laughs) until next time guys, talk to you soon.